0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sobgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 20. Today we'll be looking at seven chapters in the book of Job as we continue our series called When the Righteous Suffer. One of the greatest challenges in the Christian life is regular Bible reading. Every believer knows that it is important for us to read the Bible regularly, if not daily, but we also know how difficult it is to do that. It sounds simple. Read the Bible regularly, and yet... When we find ourselves with a moment of recreation or leisure or freedom, we most often choose other things. We're too exhausted when we wake up in the morning. We're too exhausted in the evening after work. We get distracted by ongoing work responsibilities. We get distracted by the endless entertainment options before us. And when we finally do sit down and read God's word, it can often seem irrelevant to our lives. One of the reasons for that, there are many reasons for that, but one of the primary reasons for that is that not many of us have been taught how to read the Bible well. We think that we can just pick up this book like a novel or like a textbook and, and benefit from it and receive its instruction immediately, but it doesn't work like that. We need to learn how to read the Bible well if we are to benefit from the rich fruit that is contained within God's word. One of the most important lessons about how to read God's word well is learning how to find ourselves in the text of scripture. We must find Christ in the text, and we must find ourselves in the text. We we don't just read God's word to receive a history lesson. We don't just read God's word so that we would hear about all the the bad things that have happened to people out there. We, We read God's word to learn something about God and something about us. The problem is that when we read ourselves in the text of scripture, we often identify with the hero of the story. That is our inclination. It is to identify with the protagonist rather than the antagonist. We think we're Moses, boldly leading God's people through the wilderness, when we're really the people who are grumbling and complaining. We think that we're David taking on Goliath full of trust and faith in the Lord when we're really the nation of Israel cowering in fear. We think that we're Jesus, humbly serving others and boldly proclaiming the gospel, when we're actually the apostles who squabbled amongst each other about who was the greatest among them. Of course, there are times when followers of Jesus are like Jesus because the spirit of Jesus is at work in us, though we are not ultimately the hero of the story. In fact, we are often the villain We need to remember that as we read the book of Job. Yes, we can read ourselves in the character of Job, this righteous man who suffered with integrity. But we also must read ourselves into Job's friends, these miserable comforters who did such a poor job in guiding Job through his suffering because of their distorted views of suffering and of God himself, They made many errors. But today we're going to focus on three of them as we address the final three speeches of Job's friends. And as we do, we would do well to reflect on how we have committed these errors ourselves. That we are more like Job's friends than we would care to admit. The title of this sermon is Three Errors in Our Response to Suffering. And those three errors briefly are Number one, expecting perfect justice in this world. Second, assuming the worst about people. And third, projecting ourselves onto God. Let's begin with the first one. Our text today in Job chapter 20 begins with Zophar's second and final speech. His speech captures what Job's three friends have been saying all along. That what has happened to Job, that he has lost all his wealth, That his family is wrecked, as all 10 of his precious, beloved children died on the same day, and that his body is covered with loathsome sores from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. They believe that what Job has received, he has deserved. And that is because Zophar believes in a world of perfect justice, where people only get what they deserve. There may be times when the righteous go through seasons of suffering, but it will be temporary. And there may be times when the wicked go through seasons of prosperity, but it will be temporary. According to Zophar and to the friends, God will move quickly to restore balance so that only the righteous in the long run will prosper and only the wicked in the long run will truly suffer. He says this in verse 4. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, in the joy of the godless, but for a moment? If you're a Christian, you know that if we zoom out and observe the great timeline of history, you know that this is true. That eventually those who live evil lives apart from God will receive their just deserts. But Zophar is not talking about the afterlife, he's talking about. This life, for example, verse 10, his children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will give back his wealth. And so Zophar believes in a world where the wicked will receive their due during their lifetime. They, with their own hands, will have to give over their wealth and they will see their own children beg from those who have nothing. And in place of their temporary prosperity, will instead be suffering, shame, and wrath. Zophar is not embarrassed to describe this in detail when he writes in verse seven, he will perish forever like his own dung. He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. This is what Zophar predicts is the fate of the wicked in this lifetime. And that is because he believes in a world of perfect justice, a world where people only get what they deserve and they will get what they deserve in this lifetime. And that led him to conclude that Job, what Job has received, he has deserved. He has suffered the fate of the wicked because he himself is one of them. Now, there is nothing wrong with wanting, desiring, longing for a world of perfect justice. That longing is part of our God-given, God-imprinted human nature because God is a God of justice. And he made us to desire and long for what he loves. God does reward the righteous. God does punish the wicked. But What the Bible teaches is that that outcome is not reserved for this life. That outcome is reserved for the life to come. It is reserved for the great day of judgment when God establishes his perfect justice. When those who are clothed with righteousness through faith in Christ are received and blessed and receive the great fruits of Christ's work on their behalf forever as they enter into fellowship with God. And those who rejected God, who trusted in themselves, who spent their lives living for their own desires, their own comforts, will be cast out into the eternal gloom of hell. Zophar's problem was not that he longed for a world of perfect justice. Zophar's problem was that he believed that that world of perfect justice would be seen now. What the theologians call this is they call it an over-realized, eschatology. Now whenever we hear big fancy words we shouldn't shrink away, we should press in and understand what they mean. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end times. It's it's the doctrine of what is meant to happen at the the last days. And an over-realized eschatology is when we import what we expect to happen then into what we expect to happen now. God's justice should happen now. God-fearing government should be established now. God's moral standards should be recognized and celebrated in our laws now. God's people should be in positions of influence and power now. But, but that is not what the Bible teaches. And that is not what we observe with our own eyes. Not just in our generation, but all throughout history. And that is the essence of Job's response to Zophar in chapter 21. Job calls Zophar to just open his eyes and look around. Do you see what you're describing, Zophar? The joy of the godless isn't just for a moment. In fact, it's the opposite. Verses 7 to 13, Job describes it. He says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to shale. Job is describing paradise where all works as it should. The only difference between his vision of paradise and the biblical vision of paradise, is it is the wicked who enjoy this paradise, not the righteous. And isn't that true? In our own experience, when you look at the media outlets, when you look at the people of power and influence and prosperity in the world, how many of them fear the Lord? How many of them trust in Christ? You take them and put them on one side of the balance, you take how many, how many of them live for themselves? How many of them are characterized by greed and a thirst of selfish power? Job knows that this is not a just world. Job knows that this is not a fair world. It isn't the place where people only get what they deserve. And he illustrates this powerfully in verses 23 to 25. One dies in his full vigor being holy, at ease, and secure, his pails full of milk, and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. Job knows that this is not a world where everybody gets a fair shot. This is not a land of equal opportunity. It is a place where the wicked are the ones who often die in peace, and the righteous are often the ones who die in poverty. And Zophar didn't like this view of the world. And anytime Job has suggested it, Zophar has rejected it. And, and we, if we are honest with ourselves, we don't like this vision of the world either. We don't like the idea that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. We don't like the idea. This is where it gets personal. We, we do not like the idea that we can do everything right as those who fear the Lord, who trust in Christ, who worship God, that we can still suffer. We don't like the idea that we can raise up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that we can bring them to church every Sunday, that we can put them in all the best children's programs, and yet they still walk away from the Lord, or they still die when they're young. We don't like this idea because it threatens our sense of control. It threatens our sense that if we just do the right things, if we just live the right way, then we can avoid suffering. But that's not how the world works. Jesus told his followers that in this world we would have trouble. Paul said that it is only through many tribulations that one can enter the kingdom of God. Peter said that we would be grieved by various trials. James said that we must learn to rejoice in our suffering because it is bound to come. The the mark of a true godly Mature believer is not the absence of suffering. The the mark of a true, godly, mature believer is how they endure through the suffering that is bound to come. And the only way that we won't become bitter when hardship enters our lives, or the only way that we can prevent ourselves from becoming self-righteous when hardship enters the lives of others is to abandon our over-realized eschatology and our expectation that we should live in a world of perfect justice because that world will not be seen until Christ comes and makes all things new. That's the first error of Job's friends, and that is an error that we can make as well. The second error in our response to suffering is that we can assume the worst about people. In Job chapter 22 we read Eliphaz's third and final speech. By now we know a little bit more about this man, Eliphaz. He is the elder statesman of this group of Job's three friends. He is more characterized by gentleness and kindness and sensitivity, and he he leaves Job with a greater sense of hope than Bildad and Zophar. In fact, he offers Job some beautiful promises in verses 21 to 30. Uh, which we don't have time to look at in detail. But before he does that, what he does at the beginning of chapter 22 is he goes through a list of the offenses that Job must have committed. Uh, up until now, Job's three friends have only implied that Job has done bad things. They don't know what those bad things are, or they don't name them specifically, but they've, they've implied that he's done something wrong and he needs to repent, Eliphaz is done with that, and he chooses to be more direct. Verses 5 to 11. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. It's quite the accusation to make. And Eliphaz speaks with so much certainty that this is indeed what Job has done, but the problem here is that Eliphaz has not actually seen Job do any of this, and he has not heard Job confess to any of this, and we as the readers have not heard God say that Job is guilty of any of this. All that we as the readers have heard God say about Job is that he is blameless and upright, a man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. But Eliphaz still believes that Job must be. He must be guilty of these offenses. He he must have exploited the poor. He must have ignored the hungry. He must have been heartless towards widows and orphans. That is why he has suffered. That is why he has received these snares. Eliphaz does not come to Job with questions, he comes to Job with conclusions. And his conclusions assume the worst. They assume that Job has hurt people really badly. And now God is repaying him for his mistreatment of others by making him feel what it's like. But Job, Job knows that this is not true. He's not gonna get gaslighted here. He knows that these are all false accusations and unjust conclusions. He is so confident of that, that in chapter 23, he says that he is not afraid to to go before God as his judge. He believes that God will pronounce him to be innocent. Verses three to seven. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever. By my judge. Job is not running away from God. He he is ready and willing to meet his Maker. But what he is afraid of is that God has run away from him. Verses 8 and 9 Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Job isn't afraid of being judged by God. In fact, in chapter 24, it's it's a long prayer that God would indeed bring his justice and pour his judgment on the wicked. Job knows that he won't be caught up in that because he's confident in his integrity. The only thing Job is afraid of is being abandoned by God. But at the same time, he, he knows that however God chooses to treat him, at whatever afflictions God chooses to bring into his life, Job knows that he will not give up on his faith. He will not give up on calling God his hope. Verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. It is the picture of the refiner's fire to test the true purity of the material material that passes through the furnace. And he knows, Job knows that when he passes through that furnace, he will come out as gold. Now where does he get that confidence from? In verse 12, he says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Job is a man who loves God's word. He he probably didn't have the written scriptures like we do, and yet God has revealed his words to such an extent that Job can say, I love those words. I have treasured those words more than I treasure food itself. God's word is my sustenance. God's word is my delight. And under the standard of God's word, Job knows that he will be found blameless. Not because he has lived a perfect life, not because he has lived a perfectly sinless life, but because he is committed to obeying God's law. And he knows that when he has failed to obey God's law, when he repents, and when atonement is made for his sins, he will be received by God once more. Job is a man who measured himself not by the opinions of man, but by the standard of scripture. And nothing Eliphaz could do or say would change that. Eliphaz he would have done well to do the same but instead of doing that instead of subjecting job to the standard of god's word he subjects job to the standard of his own mind and his own imagination and in his imagination eliphaz speculates about what job must have done and he, he as he speculates he assumes the worst and don't we do the same don't we judge people in the courtrooms of our minds. Whenever we speculate about what people must have done, about who people must truly be behind the scenes, the result is always unfair judgment. It's not a fair trial. In the courtrooms of our minds, we are, we are prosecutor, we are judge, we are jury, we are executioner. And we do not give the one being judged their fair day in court. A young Christian woman gets sick and we think, oh, she must have been sleeping around. A well-known pastor gets cancer and we think, oh, celebrity culture must have gotten to his head. A faithful brother loses his job and we think, oh, he must not have worked very hard. That is, that is not fair, that is not just, that does not glorify God. And that is why Jesus so strongly emphasizes, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, that his followers are to not judge others. This doesn't mean that we never say that what people are doing is wrong, but it does mean that we do not walk around believing that we are the judge and everyone else is the judged. That we are the golden standard of righteousness to which everyone else falls short. To not judge one another is to take the log out of your own eye so that we would see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. It means being more aware of our own sin than we are aware of the sins of others. It means that if we are going to assume the worst of anyone, we're gonna assume the worst of ourselves. Job's friends didn't do that, not once. Did Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar, despite all the wisdom that they brought, all their experience, all their history lessons, not once did they reflect on their own sin? Not once before they judged Job did they pause and reflect that they themselves are worthy of God's judgment. Jesus told us not to judge other people because we are not good judges. We presume guilt and not innocence. We show partiality based on how we feel about the person. We jump to conclusions rather than asking questions. We judge people in the courtrooms of our minds without giving them their day in court. And in that way, we are more like Job's friends than we would care to admit. In his commentary on Job, Bible scholar Tremper Longman says, Job serves as an example to warn against judging others on the basis of their situation in life. That is a perspective we would do well to carry on as we observe both the prosperity and the calamity that surrounds those who are around us, to not speculate as to who they must truly be or what they must truly have done based on either the blessings or the curses that they currently enjoy. We are not good judges. Only God is a good judge. So let us not judge others on the basis of their situation in life. Let us not assume the worst of people like Job's friends assumed of him. Let us leave judgment to God. And that is what will truly free us to serve others and care for them, to speak the truth in love and compassion. Lastly, the third error in some ways the most significant one, projecting ourselves onto God. What we've seen in the book of Job so far as Job's friends have spoken to him is that they are a group of friends who are immensely frustrated with Job. They are irritated, they are annoyed, they are fed up with Job's constant insistence that he is right and they are wrong, that he is innocent and not guilty. These friends are angry with him. And that anger has come out more than once since they began talking to him. This anger comes out in Bildad's third and final speech. And this is the final speech of the three friends. And it's not a coincidence that it is also the shortest. This is a final parting kick as the three friends finally give up on Job and shut their mouths. Bildad says this, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm? Bildad is saying, Job, remember who God is, and remember who you are. God is holy, he is perfect, he is just, and he is constantly disappointed with creation. Even the stars, these burning supernovas of gas and light, they're not pure in his eyes. Nothing's good enough. How, How much more do you think you, you a maggot, you a worm, you think you deserve a second of God's time? No, you are impure, you are disgusting, you are filthy, and that's what God thinks about you. There is truth mixed with falsehood here because God is holy, and this is not the first place in Scripture where human beings are described as worms. David calls himself a worm and not a man in Psalm 22. God calls Israel a worm in Isaiah 41. But the difference between God and people like Bildad is that God affirms his love for worms. Isaiah 41, verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel. I am the one, not the one who abandons you, not the one who condemns you, not the one who can barely tolerate you. I am the one who helps you declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. That's how God sees maggoty worms like us. He sees us through the lens of his grace and with a promise to redeem, to rescue, and to help. What Bildad has done is he has projected how he feels about Job Onto how God must feel about Job. He he is frustrated and angry with Job. He can barely tolerate Job, and so he assumes that God feels the same. But he has missed the most crucial point of all: that God is not like us. We are made in the image of God, but God is not made in the image of man. We, we are similar. We share similarities. We are made to long for justice. We are made to love and to be loved. We we have faculties of reason and logic and creativity that God has given us for his glory, but we have one thing that God does not have. He doesn't have a trace of it, and that is sin. And sin changes everything. Sin makes us pursue justice with a judgmental, self-righteous attitude. Sin makes us pursue love with a self-centered, me-first mentality. Sin makes us use our ability to reason, to manipulate people, and to devise schemes of evil. What would God be like if he were like us? It's a terrifying thought. John Calvin wrote, there is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. And so if, if, if you have been troubled by the thought that God is like us, that God responds to the failings of those around us with disappointment and irritation, then be troubled no more. Because God doesn't just look at Job and condemn him for being a maggot of a man. God looks at him despite his weaknesses, failings, and disappointments. And he promises to redeem him. Job shows that he's beginning to understand this in chapter 26. He writes about how he is aware of the infinite distance separating God and man. He speaks of God as the sovereign ruler of all, the Lord of the living and the dead, the creator and sustainer of the earth and the seas, the conquering king whose hand pierces the fleeing serpent. It's a beautiful poem about the otherness of God. And then Job pauses in wonder and says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who, can understand. This is is a powerful verse. It is a verse that is dripping with drama. It is a verse that our leadership team here at Sovereign Grace likes so much that we printed it on the wall in our sanctuary. It is a verse that we treasure because it speaks to how little we truly understand God. Job may never understand why he lost all his wealth, why God chose him, to go through the unbearable grief of seeing all 10 of his precious children dead, the pain, the ongoing physical torment of having his body covered with loathsome sores. He may never understand any of that, but he's beginning to understand that God is God, and he is not. Neither are his friends God. Neither are we God, and as those who are not God, we must not presume to project who we are onto who God is. And this, far from just being a theological point, this is good news. This is good news for us because if God were like us, If God were merely angry and irritated and annoyed at us for being maggots and worms like we can be with one another, he would have just consumed us in his wrath. He would have started all over again with a new creation. His righteous justice would have fallen on us and consumed us and wrecked us, just like the friends predicted would happen to Job. But thanks be to God that he is not like us, God is merciful towards sinners. God wins us over with his kindness. God calls us to himself with his faithfulness. God's love for us abounds so much that he sent his only begotten, beloved Son to die on the cross for sinners so that those who are the enemies of God could be called the beloved and precious children of God. So, when it feels like God is angry with you, when, it, when you come to believe that he could never love you, accept you, forgive you, redeem you, but you, he is constantly disappointed with you, when you look at your circumstances, the, the pain that you feel in your body or in your soul, the disappointments that you have suffered in your life, remember that these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. And the thunder of his power, who can understand? God has revealed the thunder of his power, not primarily in creation, and not primarily in your pain, but primarily in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God reveals the thunder of his power, that his justice is not just demanded of us, but it is satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ so that if you trust in Christ as your savior and Lord, you will be redeemed, you will be saved, you will be reconciled to God as the very precious, beloved children of God. And when that happens to you, when you finally come to an awareness of the love of God for sinners, it will transform the way that you see your own suffering, it'll transform the way that you see the suffering of others. You will no longer expect perfect justice in this world and become bitter when injustice enters your life or unexplained suffering afflicts you. Nor will you become self-righteous when you, when you are tempted to judge others for the suffering that has entered their lives. No, you will wait for the day when perfect justice finally comes. You will no longer assume the worst of people going around self-righteously judging others as not being good enough for you, not being as good as you. But you will be aware of how God treated a sinner like you with mercy. And you will go and show mercy to others. And lastly, you will no longer project yourself onto God, thinking that he is angry and annoyed and disappointed at the sinners who are around you, perhaps even the sinner that you see in your own heart, but you will let the vision of Christ crucified transform you so that who God is is projected onto who you are. My friends, the gospel empowers and equips us to help the suffering without pride and without judgment, and that is what we need. That is what we need in a generation that is increasingly characterized by despair and loneliness and isolation. We are a generation that suffers less than any others that came before us. And yet we are more poorly equipped to endure through that suffering than any other generation that has come before us. We need to be a people who know how to comfort sufferers with wisdom, truth, and grace, with compassion, with mercy. And so let us receive the mercy of Christ that we would show mercy to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we are convicted today as we see ourselves in Job's friends Perhaps we have been quick to judge them. We have been surprised by how insensitive they've been, how deeply they botched this whole opportunity to comfort Job, and yet we recognize that 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 is us. And we repent of that, and we cry out to you for mercy, and we receive the mercy that you offer to us freely in Christ Jesus, And we pray that the same mercy that you have shown to us, we would learn to show to others that we would be a people equipped and empowered to comfort those who are suffering with truth and grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.